1: We have finally reached the day after the final midterm election uh, here in the state of Georgia. Uh, As you all know by now, Raphael Warnock won that race. Um, We're going to talk with the panel about how he won it, what's next for uh, Georgia politics, um, what does it mean for Donald Trump, who loses yet another election where he had staked a lot of his prestige, and much more. Um, something like 3.5 million people ended up casting ballots in person or by um, early voting uh, it, or yesterday, some absentee uh, ballots. Uh, Warnock won the race uh, by a slender margin, 51 plus percent or maybe 52 percent. I'll ask the panel about that. Um, but uh, one of the things that's important to talk about here, I think, is... The remarkable story of Raphael Warnock. We we learned a lot about it when he ran the first time, uh, where he fin- when he finished up the term of Johnny Isaacson, uh, and now he serves a full six years in the Senate. But here was a man who grew up in public housing in Savannah. He was the eleventh of twelve children. His father was a pastor, uh, but as Warnock has said to uh, reporters, he his father hauled junk mostly abandoned cars, which he turned in to uh, various metal dealers for cash. Um, his mother stayed home, took care of the family, and she too later became a pastor. And before I introduce the panel, let's just listen to one soundbite from Warnock's victory speech last night in which he talks about his mother.
2: I wanna say thank you to my mother who is here tonight. We'll see her in a little while. Oh, but she grew up in the 1950s in Waycross, Georgia, picking somebody else's cotton and somebody else's tobacco. But tonight she helped pick her youngest
1: son to be a United States senator. <laughs> Raphael Walker talking to his jubilant uh, supporters at their uh, uh, party last night uh, celebrating his victory. All right, let's get right to the panel and begin getting their thoughts on exactly how all of this unfolded. It's Wednesday, Greg Bluestein is my partner from the Atlanta Journal Constitution on this show. And Greg, this is about the sixth time in a row that after you have been up all night, you have uh, done the show anyway. Uh, as I've said before, you are indefatigable. Uh, and by the way, I use that word the way I just did because the last time I introduced you with that word, I got many calls from people saying you're pronouncing the word incorrectly. You're indefatigable, Greg. <laughs> I actually
3: didn't know that's how you pronounce it either, but this is what we uh, this is what we do our jobs for, right? This is this is our Super Bowl. The entire nation was watching Georgia last night and I'm saying hey look, I'm still at the, the Marriott Marquis I booked a hotel room here, so I'm I'm uh, talking to you live from uh, the, the, the scene of Warnock's campaign party last night.
1: Well, we're very grateful you're with us. Rick Dent is with us. He's a longtime political consultant. Among other things, he worked in the administration of Governor Zell Miller back in uh, the 90s. Um, and um, he has been the, the, the political ad expert during the entire midterm election. He's also the vice president of uh, Matrix Communications. and We're really glad, Rick, that you're back here with us today. Thank you very much. By the way, you came as close as anybody to predicting the outcome of this race. What was your number and what was the final figure? Uh, My number was 51.12,
4: and I think we're at 51.4.
1: Not bad. Not bad, Mr. Dent. Congratulations. And again, thanks for uh, being with us. Tammy Greer is uh, back with us, political science professor from Clark Atlanta University. And Tammy, I'm sure you were watching turnout from the early uh, voting through yesterday's voting very carefully, because that's one of the things you focus on in your work is how voters get engaged with elections. Welcome to the show today.
0: Thank you for having me, Bill.
1: And we're also joined by Professor Alan Abramowitz, now Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Emory University. Um, and Alan, I'm really happy you're here. You're the, you're the political scientist who coined the term and explained what it meant, negative partisanship. And I think it'll be interesting to talk to you at some point during this conversation today about how much negative partisans- partisanship played into people who could not cast a ballot for Herschel Walker and instead uh, gave their vote to uh, Raphael Warnock. But welcome, Alan.
2: Well, I'm glad to be with you. And I think um, while we saw a lot of evidence of negative partisanship in this election, that clearly there were some other things going on here that, that uh, contributed to Raphael Warnock's uh, a victory over Herschel Walker.
1: Absolutely. And we will get to all of that uh, in, in the next few minutes. So let me start. By uh, just doing a round with all of you, give me, in the broadest way you want to, or in the most specific way you want to, your take on what <laughs> happened in this runoff election, what led to Raphael Warnock's <clears throat> victory, um, why did Herschel Walker fail? Greg, I'll start with you.
3: Look, of course, Herschel Walker was a deeply flawed candidate but with all sorts of vulnerabilities, um, and not and, not just his uh, bizarre statements, but his history of violence, his uh, allegations of, of, of pressuring his ex-girlfriends into getting abortions uh, and, and some of the stuff that we talked about on the show. But but also, you can't discount the fact that Senator Warnock ran a shrewd and disciplined and on-message campaign that claimed the center. Um, at a time when Herschel Walker was going further to the right, talking about gendered pronouns, transgender sports, culture war issues that just made more sense in the republican primary than it did in the general election or runoff campaign uh senator warnock energized his base he had obama coming but he also took steps to, to to reach out to the middle and he claimed to center a middle ground that that herschel walker basically ignored
1: Alan, uh pick up on that because i think greg makes an important point about how smart the warnock campaign was
2: <clears throat> well and I, I would say there, there are several lessons um, that we can learn from this race. One is that candidate quality matters. Um, the second is that incumbency still matters, that um, the fact that Raphael Warnock was running as an incumbent, I think, uh, really was a, a very beneficial to him. Um, and the third, however, is that despite all of that, all the advantages that Warnock had, Um, the great campaign that he ran, the flaws of Herschel Walker as a candidate, Um, we ended up uh, with such a close race um, that Murdoch ends up winning by just under three percentage points, I believe. Um, And I think what that reflects is, in fact, the deep divisions within the electorate and and the continued power of negative partisanship that the vast majority of voters are going to cast their ballot for their party's nominee, no matter what. Um, and maybe Herschel Walker was sort of the ultimate test of that. I mean, if you, if you can put up with Herschel Walker as your candidate, you can pretty much put up with anything. Um, and then what we saw was that the, the vast majority of Republicans um, held their noses or somehow convinced themselves that Herschel Walker was, you know, uh, was actually okay, uh, but ended up, you know, ended up voting for their party's candidate,
1: but not quite enough to put him over the top. Tammy, uh, let's get your general reflections.
0: um, First, uh, five counties that voted for, uh, that Warnock flipped five counties um, between the general election and um, the runoff. So that's Jefferson County, Sumner, Clay, Washington, and Baldwin. I also find it interesting that Fayette County Uh, came within uh, one percentage point of of, um, a victory for uh, Warnock, which is very interesting compared to um, Fayette County's history um, for voting for a Republican. I also find it interesting that um, Warnock won the similar margin uh, in this race than he did against Loeffler. Um, yet you have um, a low turnout. So you have just above a 50% turnout. So, from a percentage standpoint, you know, it seems similar. At the same time, I think the significance of flipping five counties and then seeing almost the belt of Georgia uh, to start um, flip from Republican to Democrat.
1: Thank you uh, for that. We'll go into that a little bit more deeply in a minute. But, Rick, let's get your first thoughts. It seems to me that the werewolf was killed last
4: night with a silver bullet, (laughs) and that silver bullet was character. I agree with Greg about how great of a campaign Senator Warnock ran. But he ran against the most flawed Republican nominee in the United States this cycle, I believe that any other, almost any other Republican in the state of Georgia could have beat Warnock with Brian Kemp at the top of the ticket. There is an old saying by a, a political pro, a good friend of mine who, who used to say, you know what, you don't have to beat everybody, you just have to beat the one that shows up. And Warnock beats the one that showed up, and that was Herschel Walker. Um, I think the only other thing I would add, you know, you mentioned the uh, prediction on the election. To give you an idea how close this election was, if you were putting together numbers and the African-American vote went down one point, the white vote went up one point, you're probably looking at a completely different outcome. That's how close this election really was.
1: Greg, I want to pick up on an article that you wrote uh, uh, that uh, is online this morning. How Raphael Warnock defeated Herschel Walker is the headline. And and I think it's interesting that you chose as the lead of that article uh, what you called one of the most unusual political events in recent Georgia history. And I'm just going to quote your lead. After vilifying Governor Brian Kemp for much of the past decade, the Democratic Party of Georgia held a suburban event Featuring voters who sang the Republicans' praises while also vouching for U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock. And this event, of course, came fairly early on in the runoff campaign. Um, And and that was what it was all about in some ways, was um, making sure that people who voted for Kemp um, uh, and and gave him a 200-plus margin of victory uh, or or edge over what Herschel Walker took in, Making sure that uh, those people would uh, uh, s- s- go to Raphael Warnock, not Herschel Walker, in the runoff.
3: Yeah, we'll never know, you know, just quite how how big that Kemp Warnock split ticket showed up in in this runoff because we don't have a you know a standard to uh, weigh it against. We don't have Brian Kemp on the ballot, so we don't know how big that split is. But we know in November there was 200,000 fewer voters for Herschel Walker than Governor Kemp. And we know this was not just the strategy for Warnock doing the runoff. This was the strategy the entire race was showing a contrast with Herschel Walker, reaching out to the middle. There's a lot of pundits, no one on this show, but there's a lot of pundits who said, oh, um, these split-ticket voters are going to go back home. The Republicans will end up voting for Herschel Walker. Uh, And some did, but a significant number didn't. And to me, that event was so remarkable because the Democratic Party of Georgia – you know, four years ago, was putting an asterisk by Governor Kemp's name. They've done, you know, obviously he, he's, he's been a top enemy of the Democratic Party of Georgia, but now, um, not just for, for the, the party, but also for Warnock's campaign and others, it was all about reaching those those Kemp voters, of course, energizing the Democratic base too, but reaching those Kemp voters in the middle with events like the Dave Matthews Band concert, with targeted appeals, um, with with ads that, that, that had Herschel Walker in his own words that were tailored not just to the base, but to suburban white voters who, who you know, six, eight years ago might have been reliably Republican voters who now, uh, now are swing voters.
1: Alan, um, what we also saw, I think, last night is uh, further proof of uh, the swing that has happened in Gwinnett County, in Cobb County. Um, it's interesting that uh, uh, Tammy points out that Fayette County uh, was much uh, closer than it's ever been in the past. I mean, Fayette County it, it used to have a history of, uh, of, of white racism that black people feared to be. There was like a sundown uh, uh, county. Uh, so that's fascinating in itself. Um, but we really have seen the metro Atlanta, and now even further out counties are beginning to turn blue, or are very definitely blue. Right. So I think what we've
2: seen over the last 10 to 15 years is that the combination of demographic uh, shifts in the makeup of the electorate uh, as, as well as, um, you know, the impact of Donald Trump uh, on the Republican Party has produced this swing that's been quite remarkable uh, when we look at where Cobb County and Gwinnett County were, you know, just as recently as 2012, uh, and last night we saw them both. I think giving Warnock margins of over 20 percentage points, and that and that shift is beginning to penetrate into <clears throat> some of the other outlying counties as well. Some of which still remain pretty strongly Republican, but we're but we're seeing uh, the, the same sort of movement,
1: um,
2: and it's got to be somewhat concerning to Republicans, even though they had a very good. Election, you know, other, other than the Senate race. Uh, but when you look to the future and think about you know, where the state is going and, and the changing demographics of the entire state, I think that's something that should be very concerning to Republicans.
1: So, uh, Tammy, you mentioned the five counties that flipped, and uh, among them Jefferson. Tell, tell us about a little more about that, what that signifies in terms of where the state is turning more purple.
0: Right. So um, I, I also think sometimes what's missing in uh, the conversation about Georgia is that you have people who were who used to be in urban areas who have been relocated to suburban areas because they've been priced down. So you have an expansion of of, of voters who are no longer super concentrated in urban areas, who've moved out to um, suburban or even rural areas. Also, please keep in mind that when it comes to a lot of the industry that is moving to Georgia, they are moving in, into the suburban and rural spaces. And so then that is bringing in um, a- another element uh, to the rural and suburban areas where you have people coming from other states into uh, Georgia who are uh, voting. So I think that also, um, you know, has a a huge contribution to what's happening. I also want to say that Warnock did what most Democrats have not done consistently, and that is to go to the suburbs and to rural counties. Um, And and with that particular effort to move away from so-called identity politics and talk about bread and butter, mostly economics, then you can get um, people to listen, um, whether or not they flip to vote for a Democrat, or you get people who have, a, who are regular voters in the rural areas, to come out and to vote for a Democratic candidate.
4: Rick, that, that's absolutely right. I think what you could see last night is that democ- the Democratic strategy was to leave no voter behind. That is instead of getting beat by 30 points in some red county, Warnock got beat by 25. But he Mm -hmm. did that all over the state. He gained inches left and right, and that added to that total. And if there is a lesson for Democrats to learn in this election is you better pay attention to the middle. And I think what a lot of people understand is there's a fight – in the Democratic Party, both in Georgia and nationally, about what strategy to use. One side says just focus on the base. The other side says, no, you've got to go to the middle. And I think Warnock's victory in Georgia tells us you better pay attention to the the middle or you're not going to get anywhere.
1: Um, Greg, one of the things it seems to me that Republicans, well, we know they're already... uh, uh, Assessing whether they made a mistake on this or not, but it's something they're going to have to live with. Um, Instead of encouraging voters to get out there and cast ballots in early voting, they not only uh, didn't didn't make that, that that attempt, they fought it. They went to court. The state Republican Party went to court. National Republican organizations joined a lawsuit to try to stop that one Saturday of early voting from moving forward. <coughs> and, and so in doing that, they relied on, on day of, election day voters, to turn out to the polls and allowed Democrats to build up a dramatic lead that uh, just couldn't be overcome on election day.
3: I mean, watching it from my vantage, it made no sense because they had already lost an initial legal paddle. Mm-hmm. And Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's office was willing to kind of let that go. And then the state GOP and national Republicans challenged it. And you don't have to take my word for it. Governor Kemp was flabbergasted. He went on CNN and said, I don't know why they're, uh, why they're making a big deal about this. And, and smart Republican strategists like Brian Robinson took to Twitter and, and took to the airwaves and said Republicans should now be trying to make, take advantage of the Saturday voting. You should try to take advantage of this expanded access rather than trying to, to fight it. And, you know, I, I was talking to folks at Warnock's campaign at the same time who were saying they are giving us this lead. They're giving us mm-hmm. a 100,000 or so vote lead. Um, and not only, of course, did they try to fight Saturday voting, it backfired. It seemed to energize Democratic voters. We saw a surge to the polls, all sorts of records um, uh, on Saturday voting. Um, but but at the same time, Herschel Walker was nowhere. That was Remember, that was during the five days of – of MIA around the Thanksgiving holiday where Herschel Walker had not a single public campaign event. And so that was when, and in my story, in my analysis, I I, I quote some uh, Walker consultants, allies, others. That was when they really were demoralized because one of his, one of his aides said essentially, why are we fighting for this guy if he's not even on the campaign trail? Uh, And and they were seeing nonstop democratic activity and energy um, and and a basic silence from the GOP side.
1: Alan?
2: Yeah, it, it, was, it was really remarkable um, to, to, to see that imbalance. Um, but I, I think there's an, another important aspect to this, and, and that is that what we saw here in Georgia um, with the uh, nomination of Herschel Walker in that Republican primary after he was essentially recruited by Donald Trump uh, and then his flaws as a candidate and his weakness and his underperformance, relative to every other Republican candidate on, on the statewide ticket, is something that we saw repeated in many other states. This was not unique to Georgia. We saw Trump-backed candidates underperforming in state after state after state. In in Arizona, you know, in Pennsylvania, uh, in in New Hampshire, uh, in, in many of these states, we saw candidates either recruited by Trump or Uh, trying to uh, uh, sort of uh, use appeals and make appeals to the electorate very similar to Trump's who underperformed. And uh, I I think that's something that, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see what lessons Republicans take away from this and what impact this has on the 2024 uh, presidential nomination race this this has been a really, really bad uh, last four or five weeks for Donald Trump, both on the legal front and on the electoral front. And, you know, the question is, are Republicans finally going to abandon the sky, which they have claimed they were going to do in the past? Or, you know, uh, are they going to continue to do what they've always have done, which is to criticize him for a while and then end up saying, well, but you know what, you know, he's really, we can't really uh, oppose him because he still has the support of the base.
1: All right, let's do this. Um, I appreciate all of the comments you all had during that first segment. We got to get to a break. I do want to talk more. There are enormous, enormous repercussions, I think, both in Georgia and nationally around the Warnock victory and the Walker loss, and I wanna talk about some of those with this panel when we come back.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News's extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to
3: your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Tammy Greer, Alan Abramowitz, Rick Nett, and Greg Bluestein join me. Everybody here, by the way, I know has had a very long night, and I'm grateful to all of you uh, for being with us. I will be the first to admit, <laughs> I like to usually think of myself as a relatively smooth talker on the radio, but mm-hmm. I apologize in advance if I'm not putting my sentences mm-hmm. together as well as I would like to on the show today. Rick, Dad, I want to turn to you for a minute here. First, in fact, before I, I uh, ask you the question I was going to ask you, let's listen to uh, one of the statements that Herschel Walker made in his brief remarks to his crowd, which Was obviously very, very disappointed with the outcome uh, last night. Um, Why don't we, uh, Natalie, listen to him as he talks to the crowd? It's number three.
3: I want to thank all of you as well because there's no excuses in life. And I'm not going to make any excuses now because we put
2: up one heck of
3: a fight. That's what we got to do because this is much bigger. This is much bigger than Herschel Walker. And I told, I told someone this the other day. I said, guys, I've done a lot of stuff. Uh, you talk about Heisman Trophy, you talk about all the athletic awards, business awards i won, but the best thing I've ever done in my whole entire life is run for the Senate seat right here.
1: A clearly very, very tired Herschel Walker. He ended up losing by 97,000, about six hundred. Uh, votes to uh, Raphael Warnock, But here's where I want to start with you, Rick Dent. Uh, back when I was actually covering politics day to day, as Greg Blustein still does, I used to th- say that one of the early signs of, uh, of the fact that a candidate was likely to lose a race was when one of the political consultants for that candidate, uh, several days before the election, called me up and said, Well, now we're talking off the record. But I do want you to know all the ways in which he has run or she has run a terrible campaign. They never took <laughs> my advice. And at that moment, I knew it was likely that candidate was going to lose. Now, you would have never done that. I know that. I'm Absolutely really not. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, it's, but Politico this morning has a piece up which has remarkable... Uh, quotes from people who work closely with Walker who essentially said, at least one of them, this is a guy who should have never gotten in this race in the first place. The article says he didn't listen to the advice of his consultants, that he and his wife were obsessed with attracting uh, 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 black uh, voters to their side when they were told over and over again that that was the wrong uh, way to go. It's just amazing to see it come out <laughs> the morning after the election. I, look, I have been
4: in, on my share of losing campaigns, and the joke has always been, let the finger pointing begin. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I hate that. I hate to see that because for a campaign to work, even if you lose, you've got to have a bond of trust between the staff and the consultants and the candidate. It won't work any other way. And once that campaign is over, that trust has, should stay in place. So I hate, I hate seeing that. And all it is, is a bunch of uh, wealthy consultants trying to cover their ass. That's
1: all it is. <laughs> all right. Now, Greg, uh, that said, <laughs> there is no question that this was one of the most flawed candidacy. It's already been said on this show of the midterm. Uh, cycle and and it strikes me that the question that deserves to be asked twofold really. We've already talked about the importance of the quality of the candidates. Republicans had problems with that across the country in these midterms. But I'm also wondering if we're seeing a, perhaps not an end but a diminishing of the notion that a non-political person who happens to be a celebrity, say a Donald Trump can win despite the fact that politics has not been something they've been part of.
3: Look, I mean, who knows? Because his celebrity helped him obviously win a GOP primary that he might have easily won, but even without Donald Trump's support um, because of this high name recognition and sort of legendary athletic status in Georgia. But who knows if, if a celebrity who could have run a, you know, a functional campaign, um, mm-hmm. a more mainstream campaign, just saying, what his consultants wanted him to say could have actually won because we know – look, I talked to a lot of the same strategists for my piece that Politico talked to. They, I'm sure um, they described the campaign as a death march. They talked about um, splurging on memorabilia and, and merchandise that they can't get rid of. They talked about difficulties with, with um, Herschel Walker's wife. They're not saying Herschel Walker's wife is the reason he lost. But I know, I know firsthand, you know, because I had run-ins with her too. Um, the role that she played in this campaign and how it often um, uh, made their jobs more difficult. And every time, look, I'd have I'd have sort of background conversations with different aides, saying, "Oh, Herschel Walker's going to make this or that argument today." I'd go to the event. It was the same stump speech I've heard fifty times. Even sometimes back when he actually did scrums, when we'd ask him about the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, some something. Uh, policy-driven, he couldn't answer that question. And he had such a hard time communicating um, his stances. And I think near the end, obviously the last basically two months, he didn't even talk to reporters at all on the campaign trail, didn't answer where he stood on policies, couldn't even say whether he condemned Donald Trump for meeting with a racist white supremacist by the end of the campaign. I think that kind of says it all.
1: Um, Tammy, uh, I, I think despite all of this and despite such a flawed candidate, I, I've already gotten emails from people who are listening to the show right now saying yes, but talk about the fact. And Alan really already has to some extent. Tammy, talk about the fact that Herschel Walker really came very close to winning this race.
0: Right, uh, you know that part. It, it's the the notion that um, some folks will vote for a D or an R just because it's a D or an R. Um, at the same time, um, we have to um or well, i would highly recommend that you know we we do start looking at the policy and, and do start understanding you know the implications of of you know what our one vote um collectively and how that will have an impact on in this sense the next 6 years um and i'm not sure if we really uh focus on that too much Um, such that the electorate overall can understand it and and, and then participate in the process. Um, It's also very interesting to me um, that the margin of of votes that Warnock won this round uh, is, what, almost double, double and a half of what it was in the general election. So, you know, I can see that perhaps those were some of the third-party votes um, in the general election that perhaps went to Warnock in this runoff. Um, and, you know, I, I think that sometimes it's misunderstood the binary choice in most cases that we have, particularly when it comes to statewide and federal elections, um, when, you know, and we're spending more money having a runoff election rather than having um, an end result on, you know, in November. All of this is very Fascinating and interesting. Um, I am curious to see how how I I think it's also important for us to not so much harp on uh, Walker as like the epitome of a flawed candidate for the Republicans, because other than Warnock, Republicans won every single statewide seat Mm -hmm. in Georgia in November without a runoff and won by two to three hundred thousand votes. So, you know, I think we should put that into perspective um, to be clear that perhaps, you know, the flawedness when it comes to Walker um, still um, had over a million votes um, in the runoff and almost two million in the general election.
1: Yeah, I think Warnock uh somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. I think Warnock uh w- won over uh Walker in the general by uh, thirty-eight plus thousand votes. Yeah. And uh last night overnight it was ninety-seven thousand in his victory uh this time around. Um Alan, let me let me turn to another uh aspect of this uh victory for Warnock and I'm gonna read you the lead to a uh piece that Lisa Lehrer filed for this morning's New York Times, and see what you make of it, and then bring everybody else in. She says, for decades, Florida and Ohio have reigned supreme over presidential politics. The two states relished their role crowning presidents and spawning political cliches. And it goes on from there. And then she says, but the Georgia runoff, the final note of the 2022 midterm elections, may have said goodbye to that, meaning Florida and Ohio. She says the Marietta Moms are now in charge, Alan. Well, I think that there's no doubt that, that Georgia has
2: arrived as, as one of the you know, key swing states in American politics and, and uh, that is uh, very likely to be the case again in 2024. Um, and at this point, there are really only a handful of states that appear to be seriously in play Uh, when we look at either uh, senate elections or presidential elections and it's georgia it's arizona it's wisconsin uh it's pennsylvania maybe michigan um but right i mean florida and ohio which were the two biggest swing states you know barack obama carried both of those states twice um Right now, they don't look very promising for Democrats. I don't see Democrats investing much time and effort into uh, either Florida or Ohio in, in, in 2024, unless there are some very big changes in, uh, in the political environment between now and then.
1: Greg, what do you make of uh, the notion that Warnock's victory really has sealed the fact that nationally, at least, uh, Georgia really is a swing state?
3: Yeah, this is the idea that we led the jolt with this morning on our newsletter at the AJC, which is, had he lost, had had Warnock lost the runoff to to a flawed candidate like Herschel Walker, um, then 2020's Democratic victories might be seen more as flukes than flips. Um, And certainly there's still a lot of Republicans who see them that way. But the fact that he wins helps guarantee that that Georgia will continue to be um, a, a, a national battleground. Who knows what will happen in 2024? Right. We saw that the the needle swung back pretty decisively, the Republicans in every other race but this one. And you can chalk that up, too, in part to to Herschel Walker's weaknesses. But still, we know that Joe Biden is pushing to make Georgia an early voting state. We know the DNC is angling to put its convention either here or in Atlanta or in Chicago. Uh, And we know that now um, Senator Warnock has sealed his reputation as one of the, the nation's elite Democrats, and I know, you know, I mean, he's, he, he's won the, mo- the two most expensive U.S. Senate races uh, in, in the nation's history and raised more money since 2020 than, than a lot of presidential can- candidates raised in their races. Um, so he is a, a bona fide national figure, and frankly, so is Governor Brian Kemp. So we've got two of the the nation's, you know, highest profile politicians right here in our, in our backyard in Georgia. Rick? Yeah, yeah, a couple of proof points. To that, Number
4: one, $338 million was spent on this U.S. Senate race this time. Um, so that tells you the importance of Georgia. Number two, I, I would throw out that if Trump had not meddled in Georgia, Republicans would have both Senate seats in Georgia right now. And think about the national ram- ramification of that. Republicans would control the U.S. Senate, if not for Georgia. And finally, to Greg's point, the fact that we are going to be a swing state. I don't think we're there yet. We're going to be a swing state. The size of the state, the location of the state means popular political figures in Georgia now can play, if they choose to, a national role in politics which means a senator or not, which means a governor, Brian Kemp, even a weakened Stacey Abrams, not because they may be the most talented now or the most experienced, but they live in Georgia. If those three were in Mississippi, nobody would be talking about them. So that's the importance of Georgia. We can now play nationally. We're going to continue to have that money flow to us, and we will probably decide the U.S. Senate for
1: the next few cycles. Um, Rick Dent, uh, you get the last word on this segment of Political Rewind. We've got to take our final break. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
3: <music>
1: Greg Bluestein, let's pick up on uh, something you talked about just a minute ago. The Democratic National Committee, the urging partly of President Biden, wants to shake up It's 2024 primary schedule. First thing that goes is the Iowa caucus. Um, That will no longer, if the DNC votes, it finally approves this schedule. Uh, Iowa will be out of the picture. South Carolina becomes the first primary state. Then Georgia, I think Nevada, and Nevada will still have a caucus. Am I right about that, uh, Greg, to the best of your knowledge?
3: It looks like it, although it will no longer play the, the outsized role it plays.
1: Right, right. So Georgia would become would be moved way up after South Carolina, and then would come uh, Michigan. Now, Greg, one of the things we need to say about this is that the the state, the Secretary of State's office has already said they're not enthusiastic about this idea. And my recollection is, to the best of my knowledge, the legislature is the body that has to approve whether or not a primary date is changed. Correct.
3: Yeah, look, I've seen some stories saying basically pouring cold water on the idea, saying that it's not going to happen or there's a huge obstacle because the Secretary of State's office is against it. But you're exactly right. I wouldn't read too much into that. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to – the date will be changed because there's still a lot of negotiations going on. But I don't think it was a – I don't think that was a consensus statement when when the Secretary of State's Chief of Staff, Deputy Chief of Staff um, raised some alarms about moving it. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of negotiations. I think, frankly, Republicans know they have, uh, they have something that – they have some leverage over Democrats over an issue they desperately want, which is to move uh, Georgia up early in the voting um, ranks. But, frankly, Republicans would stand to benefit from that as well, and um, Governor Kemp would, too, and not necessarily because he's going to run for president in 2024. I know there's some speculation, but, frankly, because he could use an earlier voting date for the GOP – to help burnish his reputation as a power broker, as a king or queen maker in the GOP. So this is, this is something that's really early. I've, I have seen some stories saying, oh, it's probably not going to happen. Because of the NHLG. I wouldn't buy into that too much.
1: Uh, Tammy, uh, one of the reasons the DNC wants this move, of course, is that Iowa and New Hampshire, the earliest voting states, are white states. And, of course, uh, those states uh, don't give us any opportunity to see how Democratic candidates play with their base, the the, the, the black voters of the United States. And and so this is a move to try to have a more diverse voting pool for Democratic candidates, among other reasons.
0: Right. Um, Quite a bit of of all of the primary election states um, are predominantly white and really don't uh, have – Um, the racially and ethnic diversity of the entire country um, within their state. So I I would not only say from a black vote perspective, I I think we should also include other non-white groups in that assessment because um, when we look at Georgia, when we look at other states that have a high, that have an increasing Latino um, vote, that have an increasing Asian vote, um, it's important uh, from a, a general perspective to understand what does a racially diverse United States looks like? Um, and then um, are, are our politics playing into or being adjacent to the racial diversity of the country rather than a few select states um, that have played a large role um, in, since the creation of this country um, in national politics?
1: Thank you for expanding that diversity. Uh, that's absolutely crucial. Rick Dent, let's go back in history. In 19, because this relates to what Greg said about Brian Kemp being in a role with an earlier primary of perhaps a Republican kingmaker. In 1992, your boss, uh, Governor Zell Miller, was all in for Bill Clinton in his first <clears throat> run for the White House. Um, and uh, he went to the legislature and asked them to vote to move the Georgia primary to the front of the uh, pile right after New Hampshire. They did that um, because uh, they felt that Clinton might not come out of uh, New Hampshire as strong as he wanted to be, but they could give him a big push here in Georgia. And that's exactly what happened. Clinton had a hard time. In New Hampshire, despite the fact that James Carville called him the comeback kid, it wasn't really quite true. They came to Georgia, and Zell Miller was able to make him the winner of the primary here, which propelled him to the nomination. And, of course, he actually won Georgia in the presidential election in 92.
4: Yes, and and President Clinton would give Zell Miller credit for saving his campaign and saying he was president because of that. And the reward was to make Zell Miller the keynote speaker at the National Democratic Convention. But then 1994 comes around, and Zell Miller won't even (laughs) mention President Clinton's name. So, you know,
2: things
1: can change pretty pretty quick. (laughs) Alan, jump in.
2: Well, I I mean, first of all, I think it makes sense for the Democrats to change the order of their nomination contest. I mean, it's, It just doesn't make much sense anymore to have uh, two small unrepresentative states like Iowa and New Hampshire exercising such a disproportionate influence. However, uh, I think it's interesting to look at what actually happened uh, in in 2020, which was that despite the fact that Joe Biden struggled mightily in those early states in Iowa and in New Hampshire and, and, and a lot of people were ready to write off his candidacy, that after his victory in South Carolina, he surged back to the front uh, and went on to a string of victories, uh, you know, in, in the weeks that, that followed. And so the, the order of the primaries is important, but it's not all important. Uh, and, you know, South Carolina turned out to be the most significant contest uh, at least for the Democrats in, in, in 2020. And regardless of the order, you know, I think that that, that sort of thing could happen again. So, uh, you know, I I think that there's going to be a change. I think we're, we're going to be looking at a different sort of nomination uh, pr- process in 2020 in terms of the state uh, uh, order in which states vote. Uh, I think that, that caucuses are going to be pretty much gone uh, completely. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think what what matters the most is the support the candidates have from the different components of the party base.
1: Greg, um, one last note about this. Um, the nice thing for candidates for president um, about Iowa and New Hampshire being so early is they are neither of them expensive media markets. Yeah. If you move a Georgia up to the front of the pack, um, Atlanta is an extremely expensive market to advertise in. It gives real benefits to the candidates who early on have amassed big campaign, have, have got a big war chest to work from. And there are those who think that it disadvantages people who might come along who uh, need the energy to get through a state uh, like a New Hampshire, where they can uh, build some momentum and then bring in contributions. So there are arguments against a Georgia going first as well. I don't know that they will dominate the DNC's final voting, but they're worth thinking about. Yeah,
3: they are worth thinking about, right? Um, uh, But look, I mean, there's also some smaller states where it's cheaper to advertise, like South Carolina. Uh, Michigan is another one that's a very expensive to advertise in. I'm sure the Las Vegas media market in Nevada isn't cheap to advertise it as well, mm-hmm. so it might end up benefiting the candidates with with bigger operations um, it, you know but but I think the trade off is you get a more diverse electorate with Nevada. you get more mm-hmm. hispanic uh, voters uh, with Georgia and south carolina of course you 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 have more voices for voters of color um, and Michigan, it might be one of the more important republican um, uh, swing states too for, for the Republican side of the electorate if, if Michigan ever wants to move up their uh, Republican uh, primary as well. So it's going to be uh, really interesting to see how this shakes out in all these states and whether or not states like New Hampshire and Iowa still continue to move forward with their plans.
1: All right, we're almost out of time, but let me do a very quick round. Uh, and Rick, I'll start with you. What does yet another loss for a Donald Trump, not just endorsed candidate, but an anointed Donald Trump candidate in Herschel Walker due to the future of the former president as he seeks yet another term in the White House. I've got a time for each of you to give kind of a quick answer. I don't
4: think it impacts him. You know, he's going to move forward. He's got that, that, that minority within the party. And as I've said before, if he's in a multi-candidate race, you cannot count him out. Because
1: he's got that solid 30. Tammy, um, his company was just convicted of 19 criminal offenses for their business practices. It's been a bad week for him in many, many ways. And we could go on to all the other problems he's had this week. We don't have time. Just give us your quick thought.
0: So he can easily say it wasn't me, right? It was um, my CFO that did all of that. So, you know, you can't have that stick to me. And right now, he has literally been Teflon Don.
2: Ellen. <laughs> well, I think Trump's not dead by any means. I mean, uh, uh, I, I think that he he still has to be considered as probably the the front runner for the Republican nomination. But I do think he's wounded. Uh, I I think that the results of the midterm elections this year, and particularly the fate of his many of his so many of his preferred candidates. Uh, is is something that's going going to hurt him going forward. And I think he's definitely more vulnerable than he
1: was. Greg, I think the chum is in the water for the GOP sharks.
3: It, it really is. Um, and again, <laughs> I think it's a multi-party candidate. Trump could can still have a chance, but if it's a one-on-one race, it's going to be real tough.
1: All right, we are completely out of time. Look, Alan Abramowitz, Tammy Greer, Rick Dent, Greg Bluestein. I know you were up most of last night, and I'm very grateful to all of you for being with me on our show uh, this morning. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I mentioned yesterday, I mentioned it again right now, we're going to do a live show today at 2 o'clock because we want to keep moving in terms of talking about how this election all unfolded. So we'll be back with you at 2 o'clock this afternoon. In the meantime, I'm Bill Niget. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.